Well, this weekend I had a chance, maybe you did too, to get out to the Copper Dog 150. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's a, a, a sled dog race that starts in Calumet, goes up to Copper Harbor and back to Eagle Harbor. Uh, I took my daughter, Lily, and because uh, she'd been asking me for about a year, hey, when's the winter fair? She calls it the winter fair. When's the winter fair? When's the winter fair? Uh, any of you guys make it out to the Copper Dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I saw some of you out there. It's a great event. If you've never been, I encourage you next year. It's what, the first weekend in March, I want to say, is when the Copper Dog happens. Uh, check it out. It, it's an awesome event they have. They got food. They got fires to hang out by. Uh, they, they got music pumping through speakers. And I, I don't know how big Calumet is, but I'm pretty sure like the whole town comes out uh, for this event. Uh, so it's really, it's really a cool time. But what really amazed amazes me, and will likely amaze you at this event, uh, are the dogs themselves. Right? These dogs are incredible. Uh, and, and the relationship that they have with their mushers is unbelievable. Because they're at the, the starting line, right? This big banner, music pumping through the speakers. You got fans on either side of the track yelling, hooting, hollering, counting down from 10 to 1. One word from those mushers, and these dogs take off. And then as they're going down the track, as I understand it, because I just watch the takeoff, I don't go down the track, but I know some people who work the track, and these dogs, they, they'll, they'll go left or veer right. They'll navigate uh, the course. At one point, there's like a 180-degree turn, and all these dogs, they do it together simultaneously with just a word from their mushers. It's incredible, that relationship they have to their musher and, and the authority of those dog sled racers with their dogs. Well, that's what we saw in our text uh, this day and this week was authority, uh, the authority of Jesus. In fact, uh, this week we were reading through Matthews 5 uh, to 9, those chapters, and it's like Matthew was trying to get us to see the authority of Jesus over and over again, putting in front of us Jesus' authority. Maybe you noticed it uh, as you were journaling in your Bible throughout the week. Or, or maybe you, you were impressed by it as you watched it on Wednesday night, watching Jesus in these chapters demonstrate his authority. He, he showed his authority in his teaching, on that Sermon on the Mount, right, where he, he spoke this word that was of God. And by the end of it, the crowds are overwhelmed, it says, like they can't contain anymore. They can't believe what they've heard. Because Matthew says Jesus didn't teach like one of the scribes. He taught as one with authority. We saw Jesus' authority over nature, as Jesus calms the wind and the waves and the storm that the disciples are, are on and experiencing as they're out to sea. Right? With a word, he calms it, and the disciples say, what kind of man are we dealing with here? Jesus' authority. Matthew shows us his authority again uh, in all things spiritual, whether it's the forgiveness of sins, as he forgives the paralytic, uh, much to the chagrin of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
He shows uh, uh, Jesus' authority over demons. We heard that in our text today. Jesus is casting out demons. He even has authority over death, which is the result, the end result of our spiritual brokenness. As Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, authority, authority over nature, over spiritual matters, authority in his teaching. But my question to you today is, does Jesus have authority over you? Does Jesus have authority over you? And maybe right away, like you already have an answer, you know, right right here, which is, of course, yes. You know, he's Jesus. He's God. I'm not. You know, he's big. I'm small. Of course, Pastor Kevin, Jesus has authority. But I don't want the simple answer this morning. I want the thoughtful answer. Think about your life. Think about the areas of your life. Does Jesus have authority? Because if you're here, this might not be true of you, but you likely claim Jesus as your Lord, right? We use that word a lot, Lord. Lord means master. Lord means authority. Lord is like the dog version of musher, right? He says, I do. But does Jesus have say in your life? Or are we calling the shots? Does Jesus have authority in your life when it comes to how you relate to your, your spouse or your parents or your brothers or sisters? Is Jesus informing that? Or what about your, your checkbook or your bank account? Is Jesus involved at all in your decisions about how you spend your money, what you spend it on, who you spend it on? Is Jesus involved even in this area of our life? I don't know if we always think of our technology, but it takes up a lot of our time, doesn't it? Is Jesus speaking to you in in how you use this device and how much you use this device? What you're looking at? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of our lives? What does it look like for him to have authority? Well, to look at that today, I want to I wanna look at this story of the centurion. And the reason I want to look at this story is because I want you to experience the kind of transformational change that the centurion experienced in his own life. And it wasn't even for him personally, right? It was for his slave. It was for his servant. But surely that benefited the centurion, right? I mean, the, the, the short story is this guy had a problem, he had an issue, and he took it to Jesus. And Jesus did something about it because of his authority. So let's uh, look real quick, or maybe not so quick, I don't know, we'll see how long I go today. Let's look at this centurion. Uh, the first thing you got to notice about the centurion and his approach of Jesus is that it's a thoughtful approach. See, the centurion is about the last person, actually, you'd expect to be coming to ask Jesus to do something. This is a Roman 
fella, right? So he's kind of out of the purview even of Jesus' mission. Jesus will say himself, he came for the lost sheep of Israel. He's coming to his own people, to the Jews. And I don't know if you know the end of the story, but the Romans aren't exactly on the same side as the Jews, right? This was a Roman centurion. He would have been charged with a hundred uh, people uh, to govern over, to have authority over. And his governance was supposed to be to kind of quell these movements that got started, right? Jesus wasn't the first Messiah figure to come around. But this centurion has seen Jesus. He's heard about him. Well, the centurion's been doing what we've been doing here, right? He's steadying the life of Jesus. Matthew says in chapter 5 that the fame of Jesus had spread throughout all Syria, right? So the centurion has heard of the stories of Jesus healing the sick, binding up the, the bruised and the brokenhearted. And you know the centurion has, has had to find a lot of evidence for what he's about to do because he's staking his own integrity on this move, right? How do you think his peers are going to perceive him when he goes to this Jew and not as one who is the authority over him, but as one who says, Lord, I'm not worthy, right? So this centurion is being thoughtful. He's studying Jesus' life. And he says, look, I've taken a look at your life. I've heard about what you've done. I'm going to come and see it for myself. I'm going to ask you to do something in my life. And Jesus is blown away. And we get different reactions from uh, the people in these stories, but Jesus' reaction is, is surprising here. He marvels at this fella. Because this guy has power and authority over, you know, his, his army, those hundred or so fellas. When he says the word, they go. When he says, do this, they do it. But he looks at Jesus and he says, I see that you have higher authority than me. I see that you have authority not just of your 12 or of these 70 or 120, however big this crowd is following you. Jesus, if you say the word right now, my servant, who isn't even here, will be healed. He says, Jesus, you have authority over all things, the heavens and the earth. Your dominion is far beyond mine. Will you do it? Will you heal my servant? And Jesus is blown away. And he even uh, goes so far as to say, which <laughs> this might have been to the chagrin of all of his followers, but he says, I tell you, truly, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, why is that the case? Why aren't these Israelites demonstrating the same kind of faith in Jesus as this Roman centurion? Well, maybe it's because of their presumptions, right? The Israelites thought that they would receive the blessings of God simply by virtue of being Israelites. They were the ones for whom God was supposed to come, supposed to rescue this Roman centurion, he's an outsider. He's an enemy. He, he really shouldn't be receiving the blessing of God. That's for the Israelites because they looked the part. You know, they went to synagogue, right? They did all the right things. So, of course, they would be the ones 
to receive blessing. But then Jesus follows up that remark about the faith of this centurion with that really cryptic line. And if it flew over you, we're going to read it again. Where Jesus says, I tell you, many are going to come from the east and the west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's he's talking about eternity. He's talking about the feast, the glorious feast of everlasting life. People from all over are going to come like this Roman fella. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Who are the sons of the kingdom? They're the presumptuous ones. They're the Israelites who thought that they had salvation by virtue just of showing up, of being there in the synagogue, of being an Israelite. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to be more thoughtful than that. It's not enough just to, to come to, to a service, just to be a Christian that goes to church. It's not about going to church. It's about what we do here at church, right? We engage with God. We engage with His Word. We hear it and take it to heart and work it in to ourselves. We, we, we engage with God in our praises and in our prayers. When we say the Lord's Prayer, it's not just... You know, our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name, down through the lines. And we're thinking about what we're doing. We're engaging with Jesus. And the sad irony in the Scriptures is that the, the ones who really should have seen Jesus, should have understood Him, totally missed it. The ones who were within the synagogue, the Jews, the ones Jesus came for, they lost sight of His mission. And so Jesus says cryptic things like this to get our attention, to wake us up, to tell us, to, to remind ourselves who he is and what he came to do. Because Jesus has come to be the authority for you and for me. And he does it, uh, I want to point out for this centurion, by the power of his word. And this is why we make such a big deal about the word, especially in our denomination this is how God's power comes. This is why we're trying to engage with every page in Matthew, because the power comes by His Word. When God says something, He does it. When God claims you in your baptism by the power of His Word, He means it. When God, through Pastor Aaron, says, I forgive you your sins, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it happens. The, the centurion says, if you just say the word, Jesus, it will be done. Later we hear that Jesus is casting out demons by a word. The power of God comes to us by his word. But it's this word that also struck fear into those who followed Jesus. That, that word of Jesus that spoke to the wind and the waves and calmed everything. So the disciples said, what sort of man is this? Mark says that they were even more afraid than they were of the storm. It's Jesus' word that he speaks to the, the, that fig tree that's not bearing any fruit. And he curses it. And the fig tree in that moment withers and dies because that is the power of God's word. When the people are gathered around at Lazarus' tomb and God speaks from heaven, Jesus is praying to the Father, and they hear the Father speak, it sounds like thunder. 
Because that is the power of God's Word. Jesus has power over the wind and of the waves and over the demons and over death, and He has authority over you. And if Jesus had come to bring judgment, we all would have been like that fig tree. We would have withered. We would have melted before Him. But look at how Jesus uses His authority. How does Jesus use His authority? He tells us, actually, uh, a few chapters later in Matthew, chapter 20, there's someone else who's been following Jesus. She's seen His power and His dominion and His authority, and she actually wants her sons to share in that. It's the mother of James and John. And she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want James and John to, to sit at your right and your left hand. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, I do have power, but I, I think you misunderstand the kingdom. And you under, misunderstand how I have come to use my authority. Jesus, he calls the disciples and he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes using his authority to serve. Did you see that at the beginning of this interaction with the centurion? He doesn't even ask for Jesus' help. He, he says the problem, and Jesus is already ready to go. I got this servant who's sick. I'll come. I'll heal him. Jesus is three steps ahead of the centurion. He is ready to give healing, to give help. How do you think Jesus is going to use his authority in your life? He has come to do what Isaiah said he would do, to bear your infirmities, to bear your sorrows and your weakness, to take it upon himself. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. How do we access it? How do we access this healing of Jesus? We got to do what the centurion did. Matthew says that when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him appealing. The word there, appealing, is parakaleo in the Greek. A parakaleo means to bring to one's side. Come here, Jesus. Come here. Parakaleo means to beg or to plead or to urge. Come here, Jesus. I need you. Please help me. Jesus. And that's a humbling thing, not just for a Roman centurion who's got a lot to stake, right, to do this to Jesus, but for us too, because we don't want to do this. We want to believe that we have what it takes to conquer the things that are plaguing us in our lives. We're afraid to give Jesus authority in our life because we want to decide. We want to speak for ourselves. We want to determine what's good and right for us. We're afraid of what Jesus is going to do with that authority. Look at what Jesus has come to do. 
We have to appeal like the centurion. And there are people in this room who have appealed to God, who have pleaded with him, have urged him to come, and have experienced that transformational change in their life or have seen it in the lives of others. Jesus is ready. He's poised. He's three steps ahead of us. And you, can, you and I can appeal to Jesus in this way because Jesus didn't. That night when he was betrayed, he left the garden and uh, that, that band of soldiers came to him, right? And one of uh, Jesus' more uh, uh, feisty disciples whipped out his sword, right? Cut off the ear of the high priest, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus said, you know, put that thing away. Jesus says, don't you know that I can appeal, I can parakaleo to my Father in heaven, and he at once will send 12 legions of angels. A legion, by the way, is 6,000. So just to give a economies of scale of the centurion to Jesus, right? Centurion, 100. Jesus, 6,000, 12 of them. Jesus knew he could appeal. He could ask the Father to come to his side because he knew the Father's authority over him. He said that he submitted to the Father, but he also knew the Father's heart. He knew the Father's heart to his Son, to any one of his sons or his daughters. And Jesus didn't appeal to him so that you and I could. Jesus didn't appeal so that he could go the full way, so that he could take the load of the cross, so that he could take all of our sin and our infirmities upon himself. And he's still poised and ready to take them. Just got to hand it over to him. Parakaleo, urge him. Say, Jesus, come to my side. I need you now. I, I am addicted to this stupid device. And it's actually messing with my relationships. Can you please help me? Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to show us the kind of Lord and King that he is so that he might crack through our prideful attempts to handle everything ourselves. And instead, utter the words of the centurion. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my life. But say the word, and your servant will be healed. Plead with your Lord today. Experience his healing for you. He's ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you're able as